Good morning. <clears throat> well, this is our last week in the book of First Peter. And ladies, thank you. That was lovely. That was lovely. <clears throat> and thank you for opening in prayer. We're going to get right to it. Edgar Wisenant was a NASA engineer turned prophet who wrote the best-selling brochure called 88 Reasons the Rapture Will Happen in 88. There were 4.5 million copies sold. He also mailed 300,000 copies free of charge to various church ministers across the United States. His message was that the rapture of the church was to occur sometime between September 11th and September 13th in the year 1988. It's said that on that day, groups of people gathered on the top of hilltops, gathered to wait. Supposedly, some of them had even sold their belongings and quit their jobs. The TBN broadcasting station went so far as to cancel all their regularly scheduled programming instead to run pre-recorded videos about what to do in the event of a rapture and you were left behind. When the rapture did not occur, Mr. Wisenant realized he had made a mathematical error, and so he went back and recalculated and discovered he was off an, a year and he set a new date, which of course prompted the need for another brochure both of which are available for purchase on Amazon. <laughs> not surprisingly, the turnout for the second Hilltop meeting was not as well attended. The story prompted a search. I was eager to know, a search that didn't yield any results, I was eager to know for those hardcore believers, what did you do in those last months leading up to the big day. If you really thought the end was near and that your time on earth was winding down, how did you spend it? What did you do? Did you focus on sharing the gospel? Did you do housework and your laundry? Did you go out and try to pay off your debts? Did you run up your credit cards? You know, did you worry about the future? Did you pray? Did you pray more? And, and did your prayer change any, knowing that the end was near? Well, it raises some important questions for us. How should the church live if we know that the end is near? If we know the days ahead could get difficult and that our time is short, how should we live in light of that? Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employ it 
in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, your homework this past week was entitled adorned with the beauty of knowing the end is near. Now, some of this lesson we talked about last week when we talked about suffering. And so this week, we're going to try to finish the rest of this lesson and also dip into that last lesson about humility because it fits really well together with this lesson. Okay, Peter starts this passage, the end of all things is near. Now, what does he mean by that? He wrote that, it's been about 2,000 years since he wrote that. Is this like the Edgar Wisenant prediction? Did Peter get it wrong? Does he, does he need to do some recalculating? Well, let's uh, learn, let's define what Peter means by the end times. And here's our first point on your paper. It says this, number one, according to New Testament terminology, the last days and the end of all things began with the ascension of Christ. When Peter talks about the end times, he is referring to the time between the first coming of Christ and the second. Now, let's remember why he's writing. Somebody tell me. Why is he writing the book? To encourage. He wants to encourage um, his readers that are suffering. He wants to encourage people that are suffering and dealing with all different various kinds of um, distressing trials. And he wants them to know, hey folks, the stage is set. Events could begin to unfold at any moment that will usher in the second coming of Jesus. And ladies, we're 2,000 years closer. Okay, here's our next point. Number two, Peter exhorts his readers to see their situation in light of eternity and the brevity of life here on earth. Okay, so the end is near. The return of Jesus is imminent. So what are we to do? Does, does it, is it less, is there less feedback if I'm over here? No, sorry. I'll get back over. Okay, all right. Um, what are we to do? Verse seven says we are to be of sound judgment and sober thinking, sober spirit. Okay, he's telling us we're to have healthy, sensible, alert thinking. Okay, he's telling us that we're to have the right perspective. Okay, so notice he's addressing the mind again, isn't he? Now, why bring that up again? Last week, we talked about Ken Bay. He's the American missionary that was arrested in North Korea. He writes about being sent to a detention center and every day he was forced to sit and watch television from 5 until 10.30 at night. That's the only time that their, broad, their networks broadcast. And um, the problem was, it was all propaganda. Everything, everything is about their supreme leader or his father or grandfather. Every movie, every documentary, every music video 
is about their supreme leader and how wonderful he is and how much he loves them and how he's going to fix all their problems. Now, why make him, when he wanted to turn it off and not watch it, they would force him to turn it back on and watch it. Now, why make him watch it? Why make TV like that at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they want to control the mind. They know how important it is to capture, to capture the mind. This is where the battle begins. Okay, and Peter says, knowing that this is where the battle begins, we are to have sober, we're to be sound judgment and sober-minded. We need to be level-headed. Now, for what purpose? What's the purpose? Well, according to this passage, it says, for the purpose of prayer. Now, think about it. If, if you're not thinking clearly, if you're not self-disciplined, in your thinking, if you're not rationally thinking, think of the way you're going to be living. You're not going to be making good choices, are you? You're going to be making some bad decisions. And so think about how that will affect your prayer life if you've got one at all. I remember meeting with a, a friend from my Bible study. This was ages, ages ago. And um, she would want to come and meet for prayer and the whole time she was there, she spent the time talking about or praying about all the chaos in her life. She's what you would have called a hot mess. <laughs> she was very beautiful and striking. On the outside, she looked like she had everything together, but her life was just one chaotic thing after another. Because, why? Because she was lacking in sound judgment and she was not sober in spirit. And so when we would get together, we were basically praying to ask God to put out all the fires that she was starting herself. Nobody wants to go to that prayer meeting. <laughs> Peter says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. God has given us a recourse in how to deal with hostility and the difficulties of the days ahead. Here's our next point. Number three, don't panic, instead pray. Peter's saying, keep it together between the ears so that you can pray. Okay? We have got to be women that pray. There, this, is, this is not the time to be drunk on the latest, whatever the latest mind-numbing fad is. When we see all the crazy, scary stuff that's going on in the world, we're not to panic, we're to pray. Rosaria Butterfield, she's the author of the book, An Unlikely Convert. She was a former lesbian activist and an English professor at Syracuse. And then she became an unlikely convert. She tells the story of how she and her husband moved into their neighborhood, and she sent an email to everyone there inviting them to come and gather at her house to prayer walk the neighborhood. She says on the first night, 30 people came. She said they've been doing it for years and it's settled down to about three or four families that come on a regular basis. But she says when the people see them out walking, they will come out and they will say, oh, I'm so glad to see you. Will you pray about such and such? 
Will you pray for me about this? She said, we are known as people who are praying for the neighborhood. What an awesome thing to be known for. Ladies, what are you known for? She said she and her husband have a picnic table in their front yard. And she says they make it a point to spend at least one evening a week in their front yard as a family for the sole purpose of creating opportunities for conversation and prayer with their neighbors. She said it is our responsibility as believers to take those needs to the Father for the non-believers who do not have access to the throne of grace, end quote. Ladies, unbelievers cannot pray with any expectation. They cannot pray with any expectation of being heard. We have the responsibility to pray. Prayer is our responsibility. I would like to challenge you to do something. And maybe you're already doing it. But I want to challenge you to make it a point to pray together every time you meet and you're together. It doesn't have to be long, although maybe that's something you can, can work toward. But if you get, um, but anytime you're together, make it a point to pray. Let's say that you decide to take the kids to the park. One of you can say, hey, remember that assignment that Heidi gave us? Let's pray together. You don't have to fold your hands. You don't have to close your eyes. You don't have to do anything like that. Just, just pray. Just pray together for the kids at the, um, at the park. Or pray for your marriages. Pray that your husbands will crave the word of God. Pray that your children will crave the word of God. Pray that you'll be faithful to lay your lives down and be submissive to your husbands. Pray that you'll, pray that you'll have the proper understanding about how to suffer. But pray. Make it a point to pray every time you're together. We have to be women that are willing to pray and not women that are intoxicated and consumed with all the junk that's going on in the world. Time is short. All right, let's go to the next verse. Verse 8 says this, Above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Okay, he says, above all. Above all, be fervent in your love for one another. And that word fervent, this should sound familiar. We talked about this uh, several weeks ago. That word was the word describing a muscle straining and stretching to its very limits. And so he's telling us we're to be stretching and straining to love one another. And that term one another in the book of 1 Peter is referring to believers. We're to be stretching to love each other, each um, believers. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. And then Peter is going to get very practical and he's going to help us to understand how love is stretched and expressed. He's going to say in verse, look at verse 9, he says, be hospitable. Now in the Greek, that is not an imperative, it's an adjective. Okay? It's an adjective that is describing love 
which is being commanded. Okay, so the command is to love. All right, here's our next point. Number four, hospitality is one of the most practical ways to express the love of Christ. Okay, we have never really talked much about hospitality, so I thought today we would have a little mini lesson about, about hospitality. What do you think of when you hear the word hospitality? Perhaps you think of the barefoot Contessa and her spotless kitchen and her beautiful herb garden and her cut flowers and the way she's always entertaining and having such fun with her friends. Okay, that would be the Food Network's definition of hospitality. It is not the Bible's. The Bible's is very different. Okay, and I have it on your paper. That word hospitality, it's a combination of uh, words, and it means lover of strangers, friend of strangers. And um, so we're talking, this is not talking about you hanging out with your friends on a Saturday night and splitting a pizza. Okay, this is, um, this is very different. Now, I have a verse on your paper. It is from Matthew, uh, and it's Jesus speaking. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, from now on, when, you are thinking, when you're thinking of hospitality, I don't want you to think uh, Martha Stewart or Pinterest or whatever blog you're following. I want you to kind of get this verse in your mind. I want you to think of Jesus, arms open, inviting the, the weary and the heavy laden to rest. Okay, here's our next point. Number four, hospitality means taking a genuine interest in others and making them feel welcomed and at ease. All right, now that's your general, your basic idea on what it means. Let's talk about where it should take place. Okay? Now, in one sense, hospitality is an attitude and it can take place anywhere. It should certainly take place here. You know, if someone's visiting our church, if someone's visiting Abide. So, on one hand, um, there's that. All right, here's our next point, number five. Hospitality is a lifestyle. It is always having an open heart. All right, now, having said that, I want to share with you something that author Debbie Titus um, teaches. She explains that the one common element to hospitality is that it is done in the home. She teaches that hospitality is done in the home because God created the home to be the basis for human society. Home is where the heart is formed, end quote. And the idea is that it's in our homes, not, in the, not standing in the aisle at church, where you're going to have your best conversations, where you're going to have conversations that are breaking down walls and, and forming community and relationship. Okay, all right, here's um, our next point, and it's a Rosaria Butterfield quote. She says, number six, the gospel comes with a house key. She says, if we are to make the gospel real to people, they need to have access to our lives. Okay, let's talk about when we are to be hospitable. All right, Peter has just said, the end of all things is near. We know from studying that his first readers, they were suffering, they were dealing with distressing trials. We know that they were being persecuted socially, culturally, 
may be worse. We know that if they're not dealing with intense persecution, that it's coming. And yet, that's the context that Peter gives this command. That's the context where Peter says, fervently love one another and show this love practically by being hospitable. He says, show it to the brethren, show it to the strangers. All right, now think about what the implication is for us. Because it's basically telling us that as we see the days get more difficult, as things become more hostile, as things become more violent, as things become more godless, how are we to respond? We're to respond in a completely counterintuitive way. You see, everything inside you is going to want to say, close the door, close the drapes, shut the door, go away, leave me alone. And yet, what is Peter saying? Peter's saying, fervently love one another, show hospitality, be welcoming, be genuinely interested. Here's our next point. Number seven, if we are to make the gospel believable in our generation during trying times, we must have fervent love for one another. Let's talk about why we are to be hospitable. Well, the primary reason that we are to be hospitable is because God is hospitable. All through the Old Testament, God is called a refuge. Now, how will people know what God is like? How will people know that God is a welcoming refuge if his people are not welcoming? All right, here's our um, next point. Number eight, we show hospitality because God is a hospitable God, a perfect host for those who seek refuge in his dwelling place. We could literally list a dozen reasons for why we should be hospitable. Now, we don't have time for that, but I am going to include one more, and it's number nine. Hospitality is one of the most effective ways to create a hunger for Christ in the hearts of non-believers. Now, let's be clear. In this passage, the emphasis is on showing hospitality to believers, Okay, believers that you're not necessarily friends with. Maybe they're new in church. Maybe they're new in town. Maybe it's a, a missionary that's passing through. Okay, that's, that's the emphasis and the context in this passage. However, hospitality is not certainly limited to believers. Rosaria Butterfield's testimony is about how she learned about the gospel when a pastor and his wife invited her into their home and into their lives. And over a series of two years, they would have dinner together and talk and share. You know, there are some people that will never come to a church. And if they did come, everything would be so foreign to them. But you know, they might sit on your porch and talk over a cup of coffee all right, let's move on and let's talk about how to be hospitable. How? Well, first of all, according to this, we should do it without complaining. It's as if they were peeking through my windows when they wrote that one. Uh, 
Debbie Titus has some good advice in this area. She says, use what you've got. Use what you've got. Do you have a swing set? You got a baby pool? You got a package of Trader Joe brownies? Use what you've got. Ken Bay, he was eventually sent to a labor camp and he would work all day while the guards would watch him. And he began to minister and befriend them. And he talks about how they would walk him back to his cell. And when he got there, he would invite them in for tea. He was being hospitable in prison and he was using what he had. Joseph's son, he talks of a time when he had eight policemen searching his home. They were going through all of his belongings and he thought, I'm a host. I need to offer them coffee. He used what he had. Here's our next point, number 10. Hospitality is using the gifts and resources God has given us to demonstrate his love to others. Oh, it's not on there? Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh. Well, I'm sorry about that. I thought, I looked at that and thought, oh, that paper looks a little short. Okay, here we go. The last one, hospitality is using the gifts and resources God has given us to demonstrate his love to others. Well, thank you for paying attention and seeing all that. Okay, we're going to move on from this chapter. Well, before we move on from this chapter, we want to cover one more thing. Let's take a look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, he says, as each one has received a gift. Now he's talking about spiritual gifts, isn't he? Okay, he's, he's telling them, as the end draws near, make sure you are serving the body with your spiritual gifts. Make sure you are using your spiritual gifts. Ladies, let me ask you, do you know what your spiritual gifts are? because you need to. Now, this would probably be a good place to have a little mini lesson on spiritual gifts, but we don't have time for that today. And uh, we've actually studied these before, and so there's a podcast if you need to go back and refresh your mind on those. Okay, but here's our next point, number 11. Knowing that the end is near, we should be using our spiritual gifts to serve the body of Christ. Okay? Now... I want us to move on and spend the remaining time looking at a few verses in chapter 5. So turn with me to chapter 5, and I'm going to start at verse 5. Verse 5 says this, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to 
to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Let me ask you, should you be worried and anxious about the future, about the fact that the end is near? What if you've been told, which you have, in the end, lawlessness will increase, and because of that, most people's love will grow cold. How do you deal with that? How do you not get anxious about that? Well, notice verse 5. Peter starts by addressing the younger man, and then he turns and begins to address the whole group. And what does he instruct? He says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, and really that would be better translated, allow yourselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. Now, I want to give you some definitions, and then we're going to plug them in and see how this all comes together and fits. All right, so let's start with the word humble. I have it on your papers or I hope it's on your papers. Um, it says it means to bow down, to make low. And humility is, it means it is having the proper estimate of oneself in relationship to God. All right, now Peter says that we are to clothe ourselves in humility to one another. Now the Gospel of John, it tells the story of the time that Jesus, he set aside his garments, he took a towel, he girded himself, and then he washed the disciples' feet. Okay, he took on the clothing of a slave and, and washed the disciples' feet. Now, P Peter was there for that. Okay, and that's, what's, that, that's the picture here. Peter is saying, clothe yourselves in humility. Put it on. You're to wear it. And you know, clothes, you can see those. And so people should be able to look at us and see our humility toward one another. All right, now here's um, our next definition. It comes from C.J. Mahaney, and it's, on, it's for the word pride. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. And Peter says God is opposed to that. God is opposed to that. All right. Now let's pull all these together and read this next verse. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. All right, that word casting, we see that word one other time in the book of Luke. And it's used as a word to describe the way the people threw their garments on the horse, on the donkey that Jesus was about to ride. Okay, it could also be used, it was also a picture of throwing a saddle on a horse or a hiker, he could take their back, backpack and just kind of throw it onto the ground. That's the picture here. That's what the word means. And Peter is saying, that's what we're to do with our anxiety. We're to be casting it on God. I wonder, is that how you're dealing with your anxiety? Or I wonder... Do you try to carry it yourself? 
Because think about it. You know, anxiety, it can be heavy. And it's hard to serve. It's hard to function. It's hard to, it's hard to do much when you're carrying anxiety. And it's hard to pray because you, sometimes you just can't see past it. And it's hard to sense God's direction and his guidance because it's just, it's all you can see. It becomes consuming. And so what does Peter tell us to do? He says we're to take it like a garment, we're to take it like a saddle or a backpack, and we're to throw it. We're to throw the whole of it onto God. Well, that sounds wonderful, and it makes just a real lovely little object lesson, but how do we do that? In practice. In practice, how do we do something like that? Well, let's take a word, look at the word casting. It isn't really a verb in this verse. It's a participle. It's a participle connected to the word humble. And it's explaining for us how to be humble. It's answering the question, how do you show humility before the mighty hand of God? Answer, casting all of your cares before him. You bow low and you make a proper estimate of yourself in relationship to him. You take an honest assessment of your anxiety and you realize that he is God and you are not. You take your anxiety and you cast it upon God. It is to acknowledge that you need him. Now, don't miss this. Because Peter is saying that the root of anxiety is pride. You're anxious because, remember, remember the definition, you're anxious because you're aspiring to the status and position of God and you refuse to acknowledge your dependence upon him. When you're experiencing anxiety, the root is you're trying to be self-sufficient. Why, why else would you carry it? Well, actually, I can think of a few reasons. If I, if I hand it over, if I cast it on God, it, it could end up, I could end up hurting. I could end up suffering. I could end up being embarrassed. I could end up inconvenienced. And I think we know, I think we got a pretty good guess how, how Peter would respond to that. <clears throat> I think he would probably say something like this. Yes, it could. Laying down your life can be painful. But can you trust him? Can you trust him? Because that's really what this all boils down to. Casting your anxiety on God really means that you are relinquishing it and trusting God. Many years ago, when I went to a different church, 
I was a part of the drama department. <clears throat> and one day the worship leader came to me and asked if I would be willing to um, have the lead in the Easter program. That would be a dramatic lead in the Easter program. And um, he asked me if I had ever done anything like it before. And I said, um, no, I, I hadn't. And, um, but he still, he gave me the part anyway. And I, I can remember being very determined. I wanted to do a good job for him. I wanted uh, him to be pleased. I wanted him to be like, wow, I'm glad I picked her for that role. And so um, I can remember very specifically thinking, I really want to wow him. And then I went home and I started to rehearse and practice my lines and memorize my lines. And I would, I would stop and think, okay, how do I want to say that? You know, what am I going to do with my hands? How am I going to stand? And you know, you know, what, what kind of face do I want to make? And, and as I was rehearsing, I was always just thinking, oh, I just, I just, I really want to be awesome. I just want the congregation to be blown away. I want them to just watch it and be like, that was so real. <laughs> and the, the problem was, this was for, the, for Easter. It was for an Easter show or program. And um, honoring God and glorifying God wasn't even on my radar. It, nowhere. It was just nowhere. All I could think about was being awesome. And so one night we had a big rehearsal with all the actors and, and the director, and my one son was in it. My other son was going to video for it that night. And it was, it was the night we were going to block the play, which is when you work out all the stage a movement. And so that particular night, I was doing a lot of strutting around. And, and then after, um, I went to the mall and I strolled around all over there. And the reason this becomes significant because once I got home and I started to change my clothes, I had worn white pants. And I looked at the back of my pants and it was covered, it was just bright red all over the seat of my pants. Now, I was usually very careful about when I wore white pants, so I took a look and I could see I had sat in makeup. It looked like, you know, lipstick. I knew what it was at this point. I knew it was blush, and it was just, just smeared bright red over my pants. Now, up close, you could see it was makeup, but from a distance, it looked like something very different. And so, I was just horrified. I was horrified. I thought, oh, please, I didn't just walk around the mall and church everywhere like that. So I thought, maybe I did, maybe I got it when I, on the way home. And so I, I took my pants and I walked into my son's room and I said, please tell me I didn't walk around rehearsal all night like this. And he said, um, like, what? Why? Why? Why would you let... And I didn't even finish the sentence because I did, it didn't make any difference at that point. So I, I, I made a beeline for my closet and I shut the door and um, I said, Lord, I'm, I'm flattened right now. I'm just flattened. I am so humiliated. You have 
got my attention. You have got my attention. I, I'm listening. I'm listening. And I had pretty much decided I wasn't leaving until I had figured out what was going on. So I stood there in my closet. And then I thought, you know, this would be funny if I wasn't so humiliated because something that was intended for these cheeks ended up on these <laughs> cheeks. And so I was sitting there thinking, hmm, yeah, something that I take to glorify my face or beautify my face or try to, you know, it ended up in the wrong place and that it's inappropriate. That's just, that's not going to work. And, and then it hit me. Then it hit me. I could, <clears throat> I realized I sensed that God was telling me, you took something that was intended for me. You took my glory. You took something that was mine and you attempted to wear it on yourself and on you, it is inappropriate. On you, it is inappropriate. You see, that's, his, that's the way pride works. We rob God of his glory. We rob God of things, of something that is his, something that is intended for him, his honor, his glory, his dominion. And we take it and we want to wear it on ourselves. And first Peter would say, on you, it is inappropriate. On you, it is inappropriate. Why? Because we're to be clothed in humility. We're to be clothed in humility. We're to bow low. We're to make ourselves low and have a proper estimate of our relationship before God. But now, let me tell you something else, because we do something very similar with anxiety. Instead of casting it on God, and handing it over to him. We want to wear it. We want to be self-sufficient. We want to be the one in control. We want to have dominion. So we keep it and we wear it. And first Peter and Peter would say to, to us again, on you, it is inappropriate. On you, it is inappropriate because we're to make ourselves low and have a proper estimate of who God is. It's inappropriate. Why? Because our God cares for us. Peter said, he cares for you. It's inappropriate for you to wear your anxiety because you have a God that cares for you. Do you realize when we wear our anxiety, we tell a lie about God? Or at the very least, believe a lie about God. Look at verse 8. Peter knows we have an enemy and he lies to you. He's a slanderer. Verse 8 says this, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Peter knows 
that when you're suffering and you're going through various distressing trials, you have an enemy that lies to you. And he says things like, God isn't going to help you. God doesn't care about this. If God really loved you, he'd have never let this happen. He's forgotten you. You're all alone. There isn't anybody around here that understands what you're going through. Peter says, be on the alert. You have an enemy who's seeking to devour you, which means you're in a war zone. So what do you do in a war zone with an enemy that's seeking to devour you? Well, Peter says, resist him. Now, how do we do that? Do we say, Satan, in the name of Jesus, I resist you. Well, let's see what Peter says. Peter says, verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Okay, now do you remember what we said the theme of this book was back in week one? We said it was encouragement to suffering believers to stand firm in their faith. How do you stand firm in your faith? Well, we've just spent eight weeks talking about it. We've said we gird up the loins of your mind. We've said you put on your grace-colored glasses and you filter everything through the grace that is to come to you, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We said you put aside slander and hypocrisy and you crave the word of God like newborn babies crave for milk. We said that we live holy lives. We, love, we fervently love the brethren. We, be, we, we subject ourselves to authority and to our husbands. And we lay down our lives and we arm ourselves with the right attitude about suffering. That's how you stand firm. That's how Peter is telling you to stand firm. And that's how you resist the enemy. Now you might find yourself saying, <clears throat> wouldn't it be easier to just say, Satan, I resist you. Probably. But that's not what Peter's teaching. That's not what Peter's teaching. Joseph's son, he's the Romanian pastor, and when he was being beaten and interrogated by the communists, he told his interrogator, you should know your supreme weapon is killing, my supreme weapon is dying. We've talked a lot in this course about laying down your life because that's what Peter has talked about. It has been a major theme in this book. Have you ever considered it as a spiritual weapon that advances the kingdom of God? Because it is. It is. The way we value Christ and his glory above all other things is the way we lay down our lives. And it advances the kingdom. It is a powerful weapon. Here's our last point, and it's a good summary of the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter encourages suffering believers to value Christ and his glory above their own lives. Let's close in prayer. 
Father God, we thank you for the, for the book of First Peter and how it has encouraged us. And my prayer would be just throughout this summer that you would bring the points and things that we studied and we learned, bring it to our minds, just help it to take root in our hearts so that we're not anxious, so that we can stand firm, so that the, we will be humble, so that we'll live as women that know that the, the end is near. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.